Hey, Jeff. Hey, Eric. How are you? I'm pretty good. How are you? Doing well, thank you. We are currently here in New York City in between trips. We went to Los Angeles last week. We came back, and on Thursday, we're going down to Austin, Texas for our second South by Southwest in a row. Yes, and the nice thing about leaving New York for South by Southwest is that you see everybody from New York down at South by Southwest. And Nardwar. And Nardwar, who runs after you down the street with a microphone going, who are you? Yeah, it's, it's, it's Nardwar in the wild. Yeah, I mean, like, he's just throwing vinyl at people. <laughs> So I'm Jeff, I'm looking forward to going down there because obviously Austin is one of the great food cities in America and last year I didn't get to experience anything like sat down for barbecue ordered it and couldn't eat it because I was suffering from the world's worst sinus infection all week so didn't eat a thing this year I vow to make up for all of that I'm going to come back a fat man. <laughs> that is a goal. I am just that there is a goal to eat. You want to eat. You want to touch your food. You want to touch everybody's food. I'm there That's to touch dope. everyone's food. Me and Jeff and Nardwar. Don't put me into this. I'm not. We're going to be the new fat boys. The three of us. <laughs> yes. <Ha. laughs> You're looking forward to going down there as well. I'm looking forward to getting out of New York. There's some bad energy up here. Um, I went to. In what way? <laughs> I went to our local salad place, Sweet Green. You know, it's like a Chipotle format, right? Like yeah. you, you build your own salad, you right. build your own bear. Yeah. And I get ninety uh, percent of the way through. I've made my salad, and they say the dressing that comes with this salad, we don't have any of it. None of it. None of it. They're out. Go fuck yourself. Damn. So, they, so you went without any dressing? No. What they said is choose another one, and so. <laughs> I am looking at the list. I'm like, none of these dressings make sense. Am I going to put a lime milkshake on Ew. my salad? No. You're going to go for the garlic option? No. I'm, none of these things make sense. So I was just like, I don't know. Uh, I'll choose the ginger dressing, which I do like the ginger dressing, but I like it on another salad. Did you choose the ginger because it was the least offensive or because it caught your eye? Well, like I said, I like it on another salad. So I was just like, whatever. Like none, Nothing's going to taste good. I might as well get this. And I order it, and the girl behind the counter, one is pouring it on, another girl goes, that's disgusting. <laughs> Out loud. Out loud. And bad so, energy or just bad customer service? I don't know. And so, you know, you pay for the thing, and they hand you the salad, and the girl then... I guess maybe notice that she had said it out loud and she goes, that's going to taste so good. She lied. She, uh, wait, wait, which time did she lie? Was she lying in the first place or the second place? Well, let me tell you, not the greatest tasting salad <laughs> I've ever had. Not the worst, well, okay. but I was just like, man, like I can see it in your eyes. You're just a liar. <laughs> like you're lying to me. Do you think that you would rather her tell you the truth that it's going to taste shitty or she should have been like, listen, we're all friends here. <laughs> This, this was not a good choice. She should not have put that salad dressing on. What she should have done is scraped the inside of the container, gotten the remnants of the balsamic vinaigrette that would yeah. have made sense in that salad, yeah. and or and just given me, you know, just, just been like, back. yeah, she should have been like, hey, let's do us all a favor. Just <laughs> get out of here and don't return. You know what my favorite part of this is, is that whenever we do our interview with Nardwar, as in like when Nardwar interviews us on his show, yeah. this is the story that's going to come up and we're going to be like, what? I have, I have no idea that this ever happened in your life. He's going to be like, tell me about, you know, Ty. Uh, no, you have to do it in his voice though. Oh. Ty Dolla Sign. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah. T that's pretty good. That's a good AKA. Yeah. T-H-A-I Dolla Sign. Yeah, that's not that great. It's pretty good. No. I leave think a, should, I leave think a comment. It. <laughs> if it's bad, don't I'm, tell me. I'm on... Yeah. Say it's going to taste terrible. Yeah. Jeff, last week when we were in Los Angeles, we did two podcasts. One with Nabil Elderkin, which was awesome. He's Kanye's photographer. And the other one we did is the one that we are debuting today 
with the great Shea Pope. Yes. Now, a lot of people might not know the name Shea Pope. Right. He's worked with everybody from Teddy Riley to Wyclef to Lauren Hill separately. Yeah, well, to Dr. Dre to Kanye West to Hans Zimmer, the the legendary film composer. Yeah, by the way, Hans Zimmer is now working with Chance the Rapper. So, is, that, is that true? Yeah, there was a photo that came out last week. Crazy. Well, maybe maybe Che was the guy who facilitated that. Che Pope has been everywhere, has worked with everyone, and if you're looking for stories, this is the podcast for you. Shout out to Che Pope, shout out to 88 Keys who made the introduction for us, and shout out to everybody who's been listening to our podcast, new and old, we appreciate you spreading the word. Jeff, when do you want to get into this podcast? Uh, right now. Yo, what up? It's Eric, a.k.a. Matching Donation, a.k.a. Ty Dolla Sign. Yo, what up? It's Jeff, a.k.a. Gripping Grain, a.k.a. Carb Loading. Che Bishop. <laughs> A.K.A. Che Pope. <laughs> A.K.A. Che Guevara. Yeah, it's a waste of time with It's The Real. Bow, 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 Che, what's happening? I got to work on my nickname game. <laughs> I got so many. Yeah, I just got to get it like so I can just spit it like a DJ. Yeah. You, guys have, you guys have it down, the funk flex. The, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. DJ Quick was good at it, too. We were out here last month hanging out with uh, our friend Mike Dean and Louise Donegan. And we were checking out their house, and we were getting the tour, and we went around back towards the pool, and they were like, you'll never guess who stayed here for a while, Shea Pope. And we were just like, you're kidding. And they're like, no, look at the air conditioner. Look what is carved into the back. And it was your name. It was? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It must have been my kids. (laughs) But yeah, I had the house, uh, the comedian Russell Peters owned that house. Yeah. And um, it's an interesting story. Russell Peters is a huge underground hip-hop head. So he's had everyone from Lord Finesse to DJ Premier to like um, to the guys from um, shoot, what's the name of that? Uh, I can't even think of the band. It's so old. Sugar Hill Gang. No, no, <laughs> close, close. Grandmaster Flash, okay. Grandmaster Flash, but not Flash, yeah. but but um, Melly Mel. Yeah, in that house, crazy. Like he would like have like wrote Big Daddy Kane. Like he Just he loved these by. guys, so he he loved when those guys come to L.A. He would give them the guest house. That's wild. Yeah, so that made me even want to rent the house even more. Yeah. <laughs> Let's start at the very, very beginning. You're originally from Boston. I'm originally from Boston, like kind of like Dorchester, Roxbury, and then like you know, like those inner city kids. You get bused to the the, the good neighborhoods, and right. I went to, so I grew up. I went to school in Brookline. Okay, to get so a proper which is education a very nice neighborhood. Yeah, yeah, to get a proper education. You know? Sure. So, so uh, where's your accent? <laughs> um, you know, I went to college in Virginia, and I got teased. Um, to no end. Like, you know, that was in the heyday of, like, people joking each other and all that. So I had to shed the accent <laughs> yeah. at, at the time. Because, like, ne- Dorchester's, was, like, a heavy accent. Yeah, and it was necessary. Yeah. It was necessary. It was abusive. Like, you know, <laughs> the teasing was abusive. How how big was your family? I still have a big uh, big family. Um, well, I only I don't have any brothers or sisters, but I have a lot of cousins. My grandmother had um, 10 brothers and sisters. Wow. Yeah, I think there was 11 of them total. And how many lived in the Dorchester area? And I could be wrong with that number, but I think that's right. Um, <laughs> they, I mean, they all spread out a little mm-hmm. bit over, over time, but you know, because they were there. I mean, my grandma was born in 1926, mm-hmm. so. Um, but for the most part, most of them remained in Boston. Yeah, and what was growing up in Boston like? I think it really prepares you for the world. You know, when I went to college, everyone was like, "What was it like going up in apartheid?" And it was—it really wasn't that bad. Like you know, I mean, it is well, like Boston has a terrible reputation. <laughs> I mean, you know, Bostonians are—you know—I mean, but 
it's it is true representation of life. I mean, I think Chicago, Boston, and Philly are very similar. Mm-hmm. They're neighborhood cities. Mm-hmm. So you have an entire, you know, you have an Irish neighborhood, you have an Italian neighborhood, you have a black, you know. Yeah. And then you have, you know, the one area that you know, it's getting more gentrified now, as we know, like kind of like Bedsty. Yeah. But um, back then, the one area that was kind of like the gentrified area was south, you know, south end. Of course, it was notoriously gay. Yeah. yeah you know yeah, what yeah. I mean? But yeah. no, but it was, that was the one blending area. But other than that. It was, um, you know, neighborhood. So an only child, though, did you did you have a lot of friends to make up for not having any siblings? A lot of cousins. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, I When I was younger, I used to ride bikes, like race BMX and freestyle and all that kind of stuff. So there was like a cool little bike crew that I hung with, too. And, you know, I was the younger guy. Of yeah. it, so that was good. And yeah. what kind of music did you grow up listening to? Um, I grew up listening, to, obviously, in the, in, in the house and the family it was jazz and like soul and stuff like that. Although um, I think you just can't. What was great about Boston, and I always I always tell people this, I knew just as much about rock as I did about hip hop. Yeah, mm. you know what I mean. Just growing up in Boston and having friends, and you know their friend their parents were listening to the Beatles and the sense. So I got introduced to that way earlier than most black kids. Yeah, mm-hmm. and were you listening to like Aerosmith or? Um, that was the nat. I mean, you know, I think one of the things I discovered really early was ACDC, mm. um, and that was also because BDP had sampled it. And I was like, where did this come from? <laughs> and that led me to Black Sabbath. So I was listening to like probably like ACDC and Black Sabbath and those kind of things before I started discovering Aerosmith and some of the, you know, like, you know, some of the more mainstream mm-hmm. stuff. Did you play any instruments growing up? You know, as a young, young kid, I, I started learning drums. Like when you, I went to school from first grade to third grade in DC. My mom's from DC. And mm-hmm. when my parents split up, I lived in DC from first to third. And it's almost like required. Yeah. There. It's like one of those things, if you're in DC public schools, you're, you're a snare guy. Yeah. So I started doing that. And then along the way, I started taking some piano. So, but I wouldn't say that I would, fortunately like, well, actually I still say something to my parents to this day about like not forcing me to take lessons right but i had cool parents they were like kind of like oh you don't want to do that do this yeah. <laughs> and does that translate to how you treat your children in terms of of their musical choices yeah i mean both my kids are pretty musical my daughter especially um my son has actually got a production set up now so we'll see mm. you know i'm um, you know well, he's 15 but he's a skateboarder okay mm. so but he has an interest so he's got i got him a setup so we'll see if he if he jumps to it but my daughter's real musical yeah so by the time you're looking to go to college how much do you want to leave town and how much do you want to stay around boston oh no i wanted to leave i think i left the day after oh. high school <laughs> no i i just knew don't get me wrong i had i i did enjoy growing up in boston and i didn't have, i wasn't one of those people that like hated boston or something yeah. like that i actually had great friends and you know i enjoyed my but i but i knew there was more and I knew there was other experiences. I knew I need, you know, right. I knew. You've been to DC. You knew, yeah, I'd been yeah. to DC. I'd been around, you know, so I was ready to. Yeah. So, how many colleges did you really consider? Well, my initial, I played basketball all through high school. So, my initial thing was um, I wanted to be somewhere warm. Yeah. <laughs> so, the only colleges I sort of targeted for basketball were. Um, in Florida because mm-hmm. <laughs> I really wanted to be warm. So, so I did the college tour with my dad, University of Maryland, all that stuff, Florida State and all those things. We did the drive thing. On the way back, he was like, let's stop by this HSBC Hampton. Mm-hmm. My dad went to Howard in D.C. Yep. and I think they didn't want me in D.C. Okay. So he was like, well, let's see Hampton. And then turns out a friend of mine that I was a year older than me that went to the same high school I did and went to Hampton. Right on. And that was, it was like 11 to 1 girls to guys. Yeah. That was it. <laughs> It was it was over. So you started Hampton, and what is your path there? Um, I started, you know, like most college students, like, eh, 
<laughs> I guess I'll be a business major. You know what I mean? And you dabbled in this and looking that. Like I don't even like that word dabbler. Um, <laughs> dabble because it sounds. Anyway, I could be a dabbler. <laughs> nah. Um, you know, and you're, you're trying to find your way. I realized though, um, this is around the time that Allen Iverson was in, in um, coming up, and he was he was a, when I was a freshman, he was a junior in high yeah. school. So I got to see him as a junior in high school play. Really. And then as a senior, we played. You know, we'd go to this air when he was a senior in high school and he couldn't play. We used to go to this Air Force base where we all played. So I got to see how good you had to be to be a pro. Oh, my God. And then I was like, yeah, I'm good on the ball thing. <laughs> and then that's when I really started focusing on music. Man. Because Allen Iverson was better than you. <laughs> I just, you know, yeah, yeah, a lot, a lot, you know. And I thought I was good. And I was, you know, you know, I was like, okay, I'm going to play on the team and do my thing. And, and then I was like, wow, this guy's a junior in high school. Yeah. <laughs> Newport News, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, no, he went to Hampton. He went to a high school called Bethel. What is your experience like off campus like around there? Well, it was great. This was the time where everything was sort of happening in, in, in this area. Mm-hmm. You know, you had um, Pharrell and Chad from the Neptunes finishing high school and signing to Teddy Riley. Mm. You had uh, Missy and Timlin hooking up with Devontae. They ended up leaving the Virginia Beach area and going upstate New York. Yeah, yeah. But all this was happening around this time, all around the same time. Teddy Riley came down and set up shop in Virginia Beach. Yep. Jay-Z was hustling. You know, mm-hmm. Titty was throwing parties down there. So all these people were coming. And then because my school in this area had so many pretty girls, all the rappers would tour there. Yeah. So I knew Buster. I knew Tribe Called Quest. I knew Naughty by Nature early like you know just from being in this area yeah you know and it's just sort of like um like you're at the same parties or same parties or those, those guys would come do shows locally you know i mean like it was almost like all of the rappers did seem to do shows there <laughs> and i was like i wonder why <laughs> um and you knew puffy i did i knew uh i knew who i i knew early in virginia years i knew diddy i knew um fat joe I knew Lord. I met Lord Finesse, Showbiz, and AG, and those guys, mm. Buck Wild from Digging in the Crates, yep. all those guys. Uh, I knew uh, somewhat of a drug dealer friend of mine um, who was from the. Who's yeah. from, well, no, I didn't know Jay then. I, I saw Jay there, but I, I didn't know Jay then. And um, this guy was from the Bronx, mm-hmm. so he knew all the Bronx guys. Mm. They would all come down, and and it was cool. Like you know, I mean, I to this day I still have to credit really showbiz and finesse really showing me how to properly dig for records mm. you know when you got to know these guys was there any thought that you would work in this business at that point I think I was still like this hobbyist producer something I you know uh, you know like kids in college you're still trying to find what you're doing I mean at one point I took like an engineering class meaning a proper like mechanical engineering class and I got a zero I mean <laughs> no I mean not a not a f right. I mean like a zero like and so I, once you take a couple of tests and do a couple of assignments and you get zeros on everything, <laughs> you're like, okay, maybe that's not my calling. Sure. Which is funny. Oddly enough, Dr. Dre told me, hadn't he been uh, a music producer, he would have been a mechanical engineer. Really? Yeah. Yeah, but you wouldn't have been a mechanical engineer. You would have no, got zero. No, I would have. No, I would have. Been. <laughs> so finances out and yeah. Well, I ended, out. well, no, I ended up being a finance major, mm-hmm. so that's what I was doing, but. I don't think I was, you know, passionate about it, and I became really passionate about music. What kind of tools were you using to make your music? Um, back then, it was like I didn't own any gear, so I had to use other people's stuff. Mm-hmm. So at that point, the stuff that I had access to was like an Insonic. This was pre-ASR, so mm-hmm. there was like the 16. They mm-hmm. used to have an EPS 16. 
Um, before that, they actually had a Mirage. So I actually started on Insonic on this sampler called the mm. Mirage. And then um, this is going way back. This is giving you real. <laughs> and it's also dating me. At dating um, time, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, SP1200. Yeah. Um, so I, I definitely credit Finesse for that because Finesse was like, yeah, get your drums better. Mm. He's like, you know, he's like, you're good with the chops and you're good with the samples, but you got to get your drums better. And I think what always set me apart a little bit is I had some understanding of music theory. Mm-hmm. So like a lot of beat guys just have no concept of music. They Correct. might have a good ear and good right. instincts, but they have no musical foundation. I still knew how to read music. I still understood theory. So when I was approaching doing stuff, I would I would be able to orchestrate my, you know, if I chopped a sample, I'd be able to orchestrate it. So would you sell your beats to anyone? or do you No, at that point, literally just... Just friends that had big car stereos used to like, I had a really close friend and I credit him a lot. I like to say he discovered me and give him the credit for that <laughs> because he pro- he's from Boston and his mom was in education. His mom, my, his mom and my dad knew each other, both in education. Um, but we didn't know each other in Boston. We met in Hampton. Um, we met <laughs> through his <laughs> girlfriend, <laughs> who was also my girlfriend now. <laughs> <laughs> my sometime girlfriend anyway (laughs) but that's how we met um so long story short though he was literally i would say my first if i had to say my day one supporter and fan it was definitely a friend of mine rick Mm. shout out to rick and what did what did rick do for you uh but he's the one who actually is the reason that the music was heard by teddy riley wow he used to ride around in his car he had a big system in his car and he'd play my beats sometimes and this and that and so just beats and no one on top nope no one on top just beats and so Teddy reaches out to you? Teddy, yeah. Teddy heard some stuff and wanted to buy something. But by the time I had gotten down there, I had so much new stuff that literally I played all this stuff for Teddy. Teddy just went in the back and came back with a contract. So and, what'd you do? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, it was it's funny. I, 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 to this day, I still bring this up. He literally told me the contract's not really good. That's what he said to you yeah. when he handed you the Yeah, and he, told, and he said, I went through it, you know, with Gene Griffith, you got to pay your dues. He's like, you know, it's a beginning contract, it's one year, this is what it is, blah, blah, blah. But honestly, if I hadn't been for Teddy Riley, I don't think I would have ever made it in this business because it's it's really was like, it was like my college for, you know. Yeah. Going moving forward, like he taught me everything about making a song, you know, versus just a track or a beat. So, do you immediately go and join him in the studio? Then, yeah, well, we started working in his spot a little bit, but then we went away to Trinidad. Um, there was a, at the time, this was around the time of potentially there was going to be a guy reunion album. So he had Aaron Hall and yep. Aaron's brother down there in Trinidad. So we worked in Trinidad, but we were also working on like Black Street stuff as well. Were you sitting there just being like, "How did I get here?" Yeah, it was a little <laughs> surreal. I mean, that that experience just being in Trinidad making music with Teddy Riley and crew was that was just surreal. You know yeah. what I mean? You know, I'm, I'm staying in my own like townhouse and stuff. You know, I mean, you know, a couple of weeks before that, I was in my little apartment in, <laughs> in Hampton Roads. You know, yeah. So, what had the better ratio, Trinidad or Hampton? <laughs> Probably Trinidad. <laughs> Shout out to the wife. <laughs> This is a long time ago. That's yeah. right. No, the wife was. I was the wife was in the picture. I was. I was. That was. That was, that was still the um, girlfriend at the time. So, so she you, still gives me you have this one year contract with Teddy. What did you think was going to develop out of that relationship? You know, I. It's funny because I. You know, you talk to your dad about you know before you do things like this in terms of a leap of faith. Of course, you know someone who's been in college and you know supposed to do you know finish college, get a degree you know get a job blah, yep, blah, blah. Yep. and so when you deviate especially after you know your dad's been paying money and, this sure. and that, you're like uh hey <laughs> i want to try it and my dad to his credit was very supportive he was like hey you know you might mess around and do something you love to do you know what i mean you could go wake up every day and do something you love yeah you know and i've never looked back so 
crazy. You know, it was great. Wait, what did your dad do? Uh, he was uh, he was a history professor and then and then an administrator. You get through that one year with Teddy. Did you significantly contribute to? Uh, no, I had zero placements. <laughs> zero placements with Teddy. But it was definitely night school, day school. It was great. Like I learned. Uh, he used a, pro- a program called Notator, which later becomes Logic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would, you know, to use his stuff and his gear, you had to learn that. Yeah. So at that point, I'm only, you know, I'd only really known hardware stuff. So I, I was like, what software? What's you know, like yeah, what the computers? Like what do you? <laughs> so yeah, that was my introduction to that. Then you know, what I mean, so I feel like that's advanced learning too, because you know that prepared me later for you know certain sure. things. Sure. And what was Teddy's process like? Teddy is a true musician, songwriter, talent, like his unbelievable talent. You know, I mean, he's one of those guys that, you know, you don't realize how talented he is until you work with him. And mm-hmm. then you see him in the studio and, and his knowledge of the studio and gear and everything like that, as well as being able to the psychology. Because at that point, I hadn't worked with many artists. Right. So, you know, I, I was one of those guys who was just in my, you know, in my dorm room or in someone's studio. I could sneak in or whatever. <laughs> so I hadn't really had that hands on experience with artists. And then I got to see the psychology you have to deal with, especially like people like Aaron Hall who totally. are very um, volatile. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so Teddy, Teddy is a real producer. He's not just real a, producer. A beat real producer. Yeah. Real producer. Real musician. Real. Real chops. Yeah. You know. So. so when when did you meet Pharrell and Chad? I knew Chad actually um, because going backwards again because I didn't have any gear. I um at one point I took a part time job at the local store there the the local guitar center there was called A L and M, and so I worked at A L M for like a month just to get the discount so I could get gear, mm-hmm. um, and within that month I had met Chad and Pharrell. Crazy. Yeah, and this was mind you at that point no one really knew of course yeah um, who they were in the Senate but Chad had played me some stuff and I was like wow it's really good like <laughs> they were really good like to be so young because I think about where I was at that point mm-hmm. they were the Allen they Iversons were. yeah they were they were they weren't there they know they weren't that but, <laughs> but they were on their way to being the Allen Iversons um but you could see it then like they mm-hmm. were really good like Chad played me some stuff matter of fact a friend of mine I introduced Chad to bought a beat from Chad Rick the same guy hmm. bought a beat from Chad for like a thousand dollars so that shows you when you when when could you get a Neptune beat for a thousand dollars not today not, yeah. you, know, you know and did you did you run into Tim and, and Missy back then too I met Tim later um I had seen Timberland before uh I had a mutual friend who was who was good friends with Timberland mm-hmm. and Timberland's best friend at the time mm-hmm. um so it was all kind of you know I was aware of Tim and so when Tim was blowing up you know, it was like the circle wasn't that big. Um, do you subscribe to the idea that there is something in the water down there? There's something. Yeah, there's definitely. <laughs> I mean, you got knots, you got bank, you got these guys that have just, to, in my opinion, just prolific. You know what I mean? I mean, guys that it, meaning anyone can have to me can get lucky. Right. You you get you get you get a beat on the right artist. But it's it's can you be here for five years? Can you be here for 10 years? Can you be here in my case for 23 years? Yeah. You know that's so what do you what do you say your sound is most like is um, it virginia is it well you know because of the trajectory of my career i've had to you know i mean there was a, there was eight seven eight years i worked with dre mm-hmm. so you know my sound had to be what his sound was you know mm-hmm. what i mean uh i was able what i liked about dre i was able to be creative and still inject che you. into it yeah. yeah but it was definitely this is dre's house you know what i mean this is <laughs> this is dre yeah you know what i mean so you know, I, I think because of the trajectory of my career, I, I've had to be a hybrid. 
mm-hmm. at times. You know what I mean? When I did Bound for Kanye, you know, I mean, that was that was me. You know, my opinion. You know, I granted Jesus was a departure from Kanye's sound, but that was almost like the resolve. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So if Jesus was like, yeah. That was resolving it. So totally. Bound, Bound gave him that release to resolve it. And that's why he was like, and then and then the concerts were Bound. But Bound to me was me just, I mean, I was, before Bink and those guys blew up with Soul Samples to me, Digging in the Crates was all over the Soul Samples. So I don't give, you know, and I'm not dissing anybody, but like I know Bink, um, Just, and Kanye sort of like get all the credit for the Soul Samples. Mm-hmm. Well, they had a house, meaning Rockefeller, yep. and mm-hmm. these great artists, to paint with with soul samples but digging in the crates was all over the soul samples mm. way before that mm. like i mean literally i can remember going on record buying things with them and they'd be like doo, 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 doo. <laughs> so i mean all the samples that were being used in the rockefeller era i was already aware of and certain ones i didn't even touch only because i knew buck had played it for me or i knew you know finesse had it or i knew you know so certain things i was like i'm not gonna you know yeah um so but i give them the credit for taking the the artistry of chopping and 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 the bink the way he did the drums mm-hmm. and 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 justice preciseness mm-hmm. um just as a master beat maker meaning he's a master it's so precise i mean he, he he to me makes beats like he's programming code and then you have bink who's got the soul because he he could, he did the drums to me that you almost thought it was a real drummer playing you know what i mean and then kanye was probably the most innovative chopper you know, in the way he approached samples. So so I, I give them credit for elevating soul sampling and chopping. Yeah. But I give credit to digging in the crates mm. for the soul sample. <laughs> well, you know, earlier you said that uh, Finesse and all of them, they taught you how to dig for soul samples. Like, can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, at I mean, at this point, people know the codes a little bit better. But back then, you know, when you go in a record store and it's got all these artists, you don't know the names of I mean, this and that. You start studying the musicians. You start studying the labels, you know, because, okay, this is a record you know and you like and it had samples on it. And you start looking at the catalog of who this label signed. And then you start sourcing. And then next thing you start seeing a pattern of these musicians playing on different records. So then you start searching for different musicians that you know or different even producers that might have produced the records and different songwriters. So And then, and then you just spread out from there. You know, so that's that that was like that's like record digging 101. So did you finish college? I actually did not. What? I got a deal. How much college did you get through? About three and a half years. OK, three and a half. Yeah. You couldn't oh, you get through that, that the last end? half year. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one day maybe I'll do that. Try to do that for my dad. But we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. This has worked out pretty good. So. Yeah, so. So three and a half years. Where where do you go? Um, No, I, I did the year with, with Teddy. Mm-hmm. And then um, from there, I actually uh, went home to Boston, actually, just to um, my girlfriend at the time. She had gotten a job in New York um, and in. And then I was still really tight with KG from mm-hmm. Naughty by Nature. Yeah. So um, as things would happen, this is this is one thing I never really spoke on publicly, but I will say this. So got in some legal trouble. Had nothing to do with me. Had to do with a friend of mine. As yeah, we right. all have friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not naming names, but you you might have hit that. You know, you you might have hit it right up. But um, long story short, I had gear at his house. Um, in his garage, all the gear got confiscated. Oh. So I had to sort of go back to Boston to regroup, just to you know, get. I had no gear, I had no anything. Uh, literally, all uh, any record collections I had, all that gone. Um, so I went back to Boston, regroup. You know, just stayed with pops for about six months, and sort of. Uh, and KG actually loaned me an SB twelve, which wow. is which is great because 
all of the tracks that I made that were in, from being in Boston is what, when I came to New York six months later, is what I had a pocket full of tracks on. So when I was looking for opportunities when I got to New York, I had a pocket full of tracks. Wow. Um, so shout out to KG, because you know, there would be no Che without KG, mm. so um, that's, for sure. <laughs> and so but, where do you where do you shop those tracks? Well, I got to I got to because of said trouble. Um <laughs> I had to have I was on probation when I got to New York, so I had to have a job. So I once again I had that uh that little month went job where I worked at uh AL and M in um Virginia. So I worked at Sam Ash Music wow. for, for another for a month. Yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> Did you get fired or were you just like quitting or No, I just left. I cuz I mean yeah. when when I did it in ALNM, I just needed gear. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I just worked long enough till I got the gear. As soon as I got the gear, I was like, "Thanks." You what know? department did you work in at Sam Ash? Pro Audio. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Pro Audio. I I knew at that point it what you know, what I was good at is sort of studying stuff and researching. So I had immersed myself in equipment and mm. gear and everything. So I knew it like the back of my hands. So I could tell you about compressors, keyboard. I could tell you about anything on the market. So yeah. even before I worked at the music store. Mm. So that, you know, when I went in there, they were like, oh, you're hired. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and then when you left, they're like, what? what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Sam Ash, same thing. I only worked at Sam Ash for about three and a half, four weeks. Um, <laughs> I would say when I came to New York, I knew Diddy. So Diddy was building, the, you know, he had the, you know, the hitman or whatever they were called. Yep. Mm -hmm. So Diddy had that. I knew RZA. Um, Would you go to daddy's house? Not really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was cool. I was already cool with Diddy. And it was like he, and granted at that point, bad boy had blown up and it was this thing and it was all that. So it was a lot going on over there. So I was kind of weary of that for whatever reason, mm -hmm. just because it was a lot of people. It wasn't, yeah, yeah. it wasn't that I didn't necessarily want to work with Puff. I was still cool with Puff. It just was a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. and also I mean? the Hampton Howard thing. You were like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah right, exactly. I was like, you Howard. You <laughs> um, so long story short, so I knew RZA. Yeah. Um, and RZA, but RZA had um, some guys I really liked. He had like a couple of other producers that he had met from Ohio that were working with him. I can't remember their names. Um, and and me and RZA were good friends. So I was like, okay, cool. And then I and then who do I meet in Sam Ash? Is Wyclef. As and then, in, like, he walks in to buy something? Yeah, he was looking for gear, and he had just gotten this Upper East Side apartment that he had, and he wanted to put gear in it and this and that. And, of course, I sold him the gear. It was great. I sold him, like, $40,000 worth of gear. Whoa. Probably sold him gear he didn't need. Yep, but, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what you do when you're on commission. <laughs> um, and you get a bonus. And I think they, they were like, who's this guy who's been here for two weeks and sold $40,000 worth of gear? So, but long story short, I had those pocket full of tracks. Yeah. So, and, and I wasn't, even though it was, like, a meet and just meet in Wyclef, I wasn't a beginner at that point. Mm -hmm. I knew a lot of people, and I had experience. And Wyclef lived in Jersey, and he knew K, you know, he knew yeah. KG and those guys. So it wasn't like I was just brand, like, even though I was brand new. Yeah, it was almost like I wasn't. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. So like you're telling him like this is my resume as well as yeah, and yeah. yeah so and I'm playing him stuff, and he's like, oh shit. So yeah. and what I realized from Clef, like Clef was a musician and a producer, but he didn't really do tracks. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Um, Jerry, his cousin, who's the bass player, Jerry Wonder, Jerry Wonder yeah. did tracks. Yeah, but when they did the score, Clef was like the producer and the musician. And the, and the vision behind it but the track makers were like his brother jerry john forte mm -hmm. so you know and i was once i met clef and I, I realized that i was like okay i fit in i fit in well here yeah you know what i mean because i you know i make tracks yeah. <laughs> you know so we used to do meetings and it would be me coming with the portable dat player of like my 50 tracks and then clef being the salesman and that's that's how you you know we came up with no 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 and some of these things at Destiny Child. It was Clef being Clef and the the salesman, and then Che playing Che tracks. Crazy. Yeah. Did you ever ask why Clef why he was living on the Upper uh, East Side, which is the worst <laughs> place to live in New York? You know, I think I think being an immigrant and growing up in Brooklyn, he he 
I think he looked at the Upper Sea East Side as like, I made it. Because he always yeah, had a house in Jersey. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he always had a house in Jersey. But I think buying a condo in a prestigious building on the Upper East Side was just like, I made it. Because yeah, yeah. he really didn't. I mean, he put some really expensive tacky furniture in it like um almost looked like you know queen victorian era type furniture and you know but it's, it was definitely like a sh- you know a show play you know for yeah, yeah. but essentially it was really just the studio that i worked out of day and night and he hardly ever came by <laughs> <laughs> what kind of hours were you putting in at that point i was you know I, I didn't have any kids and you know i had a girlfriend but you know i, I was focused yeah you know um, legal trouble helps you focus. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I probably put in like literally twelve to fourteen hour days and six days a week. Man. Yeah. How do you go from doing Destiny's Child stuff with Wyclef to more specific Wyclef stuff? Well, I would I would say that we were at the at the time that I came in, it was is after the Fuji stuff and they'd come off a big tour. Um I think I'm they still had a lot of Fuji commitments, but mm-hmm. you know, I think they all were and at that point, the talk of a Lauren solo album hadn't been come up. But while he was on tour, he had found samples while he was around the world. And that's where some of the t- samples that were on the carnival came from. Um, so he had that in mind. He mm-hmm. had this album he had conceptualized. So when I when I started working with him, like even day one, even though we were shopping tracks for different projects and this and that, he really was focused about carnival. Mm. So it was really about his solo project. And how much was it on your mind to create this this idea of Wyclef as a solo artist rather than like one piece of the Fugees? Um, because the because the carnival it was so conceptual. Like I mean, he really knew what he wanted. Meaning he wanted to incorporate you know Guantada, you know he wanted to incorporate all these textures. So that worked out well for me because I think when it came to sampling and creating records, I ended up being very um eclectic in what I would you know I would get all sorts of I mean I was I had Calypso records I had all sorts of stuff I just was eclectic anyway you know what I mean yeah (laughs) eclectic perfect exactly right so you know my first actual placement and credit is on the carnival you know to all the girls yeah you know how did it feel to actually like be credited for your work oh it was like that that was a game changer that was like you know it's like anything you give you know it's like a kid who never had you know who grew up vegetarian and never had a piece of bacon you give him a piece of bacon he's like oh what's the bacon? you know so i just wanted more you know what i mean so you get you once you got a taste then it was like so if i was doing 12 to 14 hour days and after that i was doing 16 hour days you mm. know like because i just wanted more you know and was it a natural progression just to move to lauren at that point well no you know i befriended lauren along the way and Shout out to Clive Davis because a lot of people don't realize the impact in urban music that Clive Davis has had. Clive Davis is the person that gave Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis their deal. He's the person that gave um, um, L.A. LaFace and Babyface their deal. Mm-hmm. He's the person that gave Puff his deal. Mm-hmm. But what a lot of people don't know is he's also very influential. He's the person that gave Lauren the first opportunity to produce. So when same thing, it was I was the perfect fit because Lauren. She produced, but she and she was a good producer in terms of knowing what she wanted, but she didn't actually work the machines or the equipment. Mm-hmm. So she needed someone like me. <laughs> and then she got to see me work with, with Wyclef. She knew the pros and cons of my situation there. Mm-hmm. And she prayed on that. She was like, so you're not really happy about this, but you know, I'm about to do this and I've got this opportunity. So the first record we did together was, um, we did two records. We did, before we started on The Miseducation, actually we did Aretha Franklin, mm-hmm. A Rose is a Rose. And then we did uh, this at the time. There was a song who's a songwriter who's 
pretty established songwriter later in the day. Andrea Martin was an artist at the time on Arista. So we did a remix for her. That was the first record we did, was the remix for Andrea Martin. And then we did um, Aretha. And there was a comfort there between you guys as songwriters then? Yeah, I think at that point, me and Lauren, because we had been friends. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I obviously met her with Wyclef and the Fuji stuff, but we sort of established a rapport. So when it time when it was time to, you know, the first record, the Rosa Rose stuff, we, I mean, we did that in her parents' attic. Really? You know, yeah. Me, her, and a uh, uh, bass player named Vera Isaac. Shout out to Vera Isaac, because he wasn't happy with everything, but that had nothing to do with me. <laughs> Were the acoustics just nice in the attic? No, I think that's just really, that's the area, the space she had put aside for her, like, music room at the time. Mm. And it was just, but it was fun, because, I mean, we were all excited, you yeah. know what I mean? We were all excited going in there, totally open-minded, you know? And how do you manage expectations in terms of, you just did this monster record that becomes Carnival, right? Yeah. And then, obviously, everyone's just fiending for this project from, from Lauren. How do you not sort of fall prey to everyone's high expectations? Because she had some shit to get off her chest. So, she, <laughs> I mean, she made it known right from the door, this isn't about that. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, you know, whether she, you know, whether she went back and did another Fuji record or that. Mm -hmm. She had the huge commercial success with the Fujis. So, I think, I mean, literally, I mean, I can remember, like, Day one, it was like maybe me, her, and James Poyser. And she said, I like soul music, I like reggae, and I like Wu-Tang. Go, go to work. <laughs> and that was it. And me and James went to work. And the first record I think we did with her, it's, it's either the first or the second one, was doo-wop. Wow. And you incorporated all three things. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was the goal. I mean, at all, time, at, at all times, we that's, you know, I tried to have all, you know, I think I used to have, my my thirty six chambers album like just right there at all times like I would have like certain inspirations around me at all times so even if I lost focus or I was struggling one time you know I could stop and just put this on the turntable and just sit back and you know, <laughs> get high or whatever yeah and just listen to, and and refocus you know so do you and James play your positions in that like he's always on the keys and you're always programming me and James I mean to this day we're still like lifelong friends like I mean like he played at my wedding I played Zion actually at my wow. wedding. Um, like we're lifelong friends so meaning i think we had a just a great rapport in the studio that we could play off each other like instinctively yeah. so i could do something or i could do something and he could he could react to it so great you know Man. like he could you know respond to it yeah so it was call and response meaning he might do something and then i might respond to it or i might do something and then he'd respond to it so yeah. it was great and so lauren's record goes crazy and becomes an instant classic where do you go from there you get lost. <laughs> you get confused. I would say, and because I'm speaking frankly and I've spoke on it once now, I had never spoken on this publicly before, but until the Paris interview. Um, then the business of that ra record wasn't right. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were records like a, that I did in my Brooklyn Brownstone like, and then brought to the table and didn't get publishing on. So, and then, and, and because I had come through Teddy Camp Yep. So to speak, if you or Teddy College. Yeah. <laughs> I was very clear into what my contributions meant. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I was always I was always very clear of what my abilities were and what my contributions were. So there was no misunderstanding in terms of is he a programmer in this sense? Is he a, is he is he a songwriter in this sense? Is he a producer in this sense? I was very clear, had a very clear understanding of what the business was. Yeah. So um, me and James Poyser contributed very heavily to seven or eight records on that on the record where we were hardly credited, mm. you know, 
I'm the only one that got a co-production credit. If you look on the back of the album, but even even then they put an asterisk by it. Why? The Steroids? asterisk to make it say like it's it's only for one record. No, but why do you think that that the business was just done so poorly? I feel like the people that Lauren, you know, I don't know. You know what? I've tried to explain this in the past before. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I think everyone has their battles and their demons and you know, whatever, or whatever they, they're dealing with. Meaning, yeah. I don't think she did it with malice. Right. I don't think there's malice in their heart. I mean, to this day, we're, me and Lauren are cool. Yeah. You know. Um, but even I, so, did, I mean, did that break your heart? Was that a little? You know, it was. It was like a, it was definitely like a, a baseball bat of reality. Um, I think one of the reasons I ended up being an A and R and working a record label was because I wanted to learn it from the other. You know, I felt like I knew the creative side of things, but I didn't know, you know, the business side. And in retrospect, I know now, you know, which you can't get taken advantage of. The only way you get taken advantage of is if you don't have your business and your and and protect yourself. Yeah. So the only way you can get ripped off in the music industry because you allowed it to happen. Right. So did you go to Warner Brothers immediately? No. Uh, I would probably say there was definitely six months of like, what the fuck? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, there's just the reality of like, okay, this is this is actually, you're really getting fucked right now. Like, yeah. But at the same time, you, you know, people in the industry probably recognize you at that point as having worked with two just legendary albums at that time with two megastars. Was there a demand for you on the production end in those six months? I would say there's definitely opportunity. But at first, one of the things that, I never wanted to be like sort of pigeonholed for a sound. And this was the sort of like neo soul kind of time too. So it was a lot of like, it, it felt like the opportunities that were coming my way were were neo, a lot of neo soul things. Mm-hmm. And I probably, in retrospect, I probably should have done quite a bit more of them than I did. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did like, do, I'll leave that to James. I, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, really. Because James was from Philly and yeah. these artists were like Jill Scott and and music soul child obviously ended up being great and I wish I was a, actually in retrospect I wish I was a part of some of that or more a part of some of it I know them all mm-hmm. but I didn't really gravitate that well, I also wanted to see the world so I went to London wow. I started doing some pop stuff in London I did Cleopatra I did All Saints I did you know some random random stuff all I got Saints. into music scoring a little bit you know I started to learn about music scoring but also took a gig at Warner Brothers mm-hmm. you know which and is a learning experience yeah well what was it like working in a building um it was my, you have to, and honestly, it was like my really first job. Like, I mean, cor- especially in a corporate job, you yeah. know. Well, longer so, than three weeks. Yeah. 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 You know what I mean? Like, you know, other than that, I mean, my, my grandmother was like Mike Dukakis's receptionist. So I had, wow. like, you know, like a summer job at the state house where I had to wear like a shirt or something. But mm-hmm. other than that. Yeah. But you weren't wearing a shirt to. <laughs> yeah. You know, but it was like, okay, I got a job and, you know, responsibilities and accountability. But this was actually the time Warner was merging with AOL. So they were going through a period. So we couldn't really do too much. But it was great. It was a great learning experience. I put my office next to business affairs. So, I, you know, I spent a lot of time with business affairs. The guy who hired me is David Kahn. It's like a legendary music producer and record guy. So it was like he, he's still to this day kind of like a mentor. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a genius with, with gear and equipment. So I worked under David Kahn. So it was like and then I was next to business affairs. So it was like a crash course of like learning who were some of the artists who were signed over to warner at that point at that time well as far as new artists this on the this was the heyday of warner on the rock side this is when they signed green day this oh, is wow. when they signed um uh lincoln park yeah, yeah. um all, all this happened when i was there um on the urban side not much mm-hmm. i mean they had a deal with manual seal so that's why i got met manual seal who mm-hmm. did all the so so deaf stuff with yep. jermaine manual had a deal um my concession had a deal yeah <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> um, but they had like Eric Benet and some of these other people. Wow. I met Eric Benet and um, who was also friends with James, so it was like small world. But anyway, I met Eric Benet and they had, and and then I had Jaheem, who was KG's artist. So yep. they had some 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 R and B singers and stuff like that. Shout out to Allison Ball Gabriel because she signed a lot of that stuff. And did you enjoy that part of your life? Um. It was a transition period, but it was necessary, mm-hmm. you know. And then Tom Wally came over and took over the reins. And as the first time I saw a guy who, who his, you talk about a poker face. Yeah. I mean, you could play music for him. You had no idea if he <laughs> loved it or hated it. I mean, the guy's poker face is, like, phenomenal. We ask this a bunch. Like, when you play music for someone, do you watch their reaction? Yeah, like, where are you looking in the room? I mean, you, you, you yeah, yeah. Because, you, I mean, at the end of the day, you know. You just any, I think anybody that's a creative, and you share your your you, you know it's a personal thing. You mm-hmm. share you know you react. You yeah. know what I mean you want people to like it. You know yeah. it's like you're all it's like that kid in the corner. Hey, I want you to like me. <laughs> hey, I want friends. No, but I mean every time you play a song, that's what it's like. Hey, will you be my friend? Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. So and then you know and then if they don't like it, then you're like well, fuck it, <laughs> fuck you. I'm gonna put it out anyway. You know. So how long does your, your tenure at Warner Brothers last? Well, fortunately, when Wally came over, I was offered a buyout. So I was able to sort of get still get paid for a couple of years and leave. Yeah. So I was like, oh, I could get paid and not work. Yeah, let's, <laughs> let's, let's, let's do that. Um, and then I, um, you know, that led to me showing up on Hans Zimmer's doorstep. You literally showed up on his doorstep. I did. <laughs> I had scored, scored, scored a couple of movies. I scored this British movie called Life and Lyric. I think they kept that as the name. I don't remember. Uh, and I did this movie, White Boys. A lot of people saw White Boys. Yeah, yeah, had yeah. Danny Hawk in it and so on and so forth. And that's different from White Chicks. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. 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 Just making sure. Yeah. Um, it's funny because all those, all those actors are still very like, just still, you know, I see them all in different things. Um, the Wayans? No, no, from, no, no. no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I haven't seen them lately, no. But um, um, so I'll, Hans Zimmer, though. Yeah, I didn't. I when I scored the movie, I had no absolute. I had no clue as to what I was doing. Um, no clue. So and and got it done. And I was like, you know what? I just looked up like best composers and it was like three or four of them and I just contacted them randomly. Yeah, and John Williams didn't pick up. So yeah, 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 yeah. John Williams didn't pick up. Um, <laughs> somebody else I did get in touch with but ended up, they didn't really have like, they were in the middle of a film or something and Hans had like a facility so it was like, well yeah, you know, I'm going to be working or whatever but yeah, I'll talk to you because, and at that day, you know, at that point I didn't come empty handed. I had a, you know, Grammy for album of the year. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't come in empty handed. <laughs> I think if I had just come in empty handed I don't think they would let me in the door. Did you bring the Grammy with you? Like, <laughs> I, I, yeah. Did I, you bring the asterisk with you? Yeah. <laughs> I, um, so was Hans living in New York or Los no, Angeles? No, no, Los Angeles, Santa Monica. So, well, he lived in Malibu. But. So you knock on that door and, and what did you want out of that relationship? Uh, to learn, mm-hmm. you know, to learn. I, I felt like I could contribute because, you know, to me, whether if you're doing a big blockbuster movie now, obviously there's certain ones like Gladiator that don't, you know, respond. But but I also feel like when you're doing sort of more the mainstream, you need some cool shit in a movie. Mm-hmm. And I do cool shit. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that was my really my pitch to him. That's awesome. I was like, hey, I can come do cool shit. I'm not a classic trained composer, but I do cool shit. And I played I do, him some shit. And it was I so do cool. cool shit should be like on your LinkedIn. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And 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 that got me in the door, and, you know. And what kind of stuff did you work on with him? You know, I at that point I also discovered licensing, music licensing. So they they had a deal with this company called Extreme, which they still have a deal with, um, which that's like the mass production of licensing. But it was great because you know I bought my first house from licensing deals. Wow. So um, 
if if you're a music producer or a songwriter, you should learn about licensing syncing. Mm-hmm. That's your, you know, but um, it could pay that mortgage for you mm-hmm. one day. <laughs> um, so I did additional production on just like I don't know over two hundred different things. Wow! I, I I had a list of it one day. They sent me they they sent me a list just so I'd have it. It was like over two hundred different programs from like everything from like ESPN stuff to you know big movies and you know where wow. I would just do production because it was great because when Hans worked on a movie Hans writes a theme and that and that could be like the theme of the movie and then you could reinterpret you know so he could give you the theme and then you could reinterpret the movie different, in different yeah, ways yeah totally but you know at that point Hans was already Hans <laughs> I wasn't really working on Hans shit I was working on some of the other guys so. <laughs> do you miss at that point do you miss like commercial music at all or are um, you just like well this is this is where I want to be at that point no um because I still was on sort of the journey of you know, but I had friends that were doing great things. So I was kind of, you know, you start looking over like, oh, damn, I should be doing that too. <laughs> but, you know, but I had at the, that time, I, you know, I had this amazing room in Santa Monica at this composer's facility working with these really talented composers. Every day was exciting. You know, I mean, I got the best lessons just walking the halls at two in the morning and like, you know, having red wine with one of the composers and he's showing me stuff he's doing. It's like, it's like, it's like the music business. I mean, just music all brand new all over again. Because mm-hmm. I'm learning a whole different skill set and different, you know, so that was great. Did you get to see any of your compositions be played by a giant orchestra? Um, my stuff was still the cool stuff. They did get the orchestra <laughs> stuff, so not not really. My stuff was pretty much like, oh shit, we're gonna keep it exactly like this. That's you know, and just put it right in because we don't know what to do with that. So just let it be, you know. <laughs> so how long did you do cool shit with Hans Zimmer? Well, up until he had a partner, this guy named Jay Rifkin, and then they up suing each other. So when they ended up suing each other, that ended up being a kind of long drawn out thing. So when that, and right around that time, which is funny, coincidentally, like coincides with the, I was getting the itch Mm. to get back into doing production. And a friend of mine, um, actually tough from Channel Live, Mm -hmm. he introduced me, him and Mike City introduced me. They took me to an aftermath holiday party (laughs) where I met Dre. So you meet Dr. Dre and was there an immediate connection there? I think I think we uh, we hit it off, but it was more so like he opened the door to like, hey, if you if you got some tracks, come play me some stuff. And at that point, I had been like quietly plotting my way back into the music industry, so I had some stuff. Yeah. So you know, I, I kept you know he would t- you know I'd show up, play him some stuff. Um, I'd say every time I went for about three weeks, you know, he took something, you know, which is great. I never had to, I never brought too many things too. I'd bring like four, maybe four tracks or something, mm-hmm. and out of the four, he'd like one or two or something like that, you know. And then, yeah, <laughs> which led to him offering me like a producer deal first. And then the producer deal led to him inviting me into his immediate production circle. So we just had Primo and Royce to Five Nine on, and they said that Dre's speakers hit harder than any other speakers in the world. Yeah, like way louder. What, what was your experience with his rooms? Yes, but even <laughs> now he's, you know, he's beats Dr. Dre. So now his budget's even more ridiculous. So <laughs> the studio is even more ridiculous and the speakers sound even crazier. But during my tenure, yes, his speakers definitely always knocked. Did uh, your beats sound better on his speakers? Yes. Yeah. yes. Every, everything sounds better in Dre's studio. <laughs> Do you appreciate his, his SSL board? Oh, the one that he gifted me? Yeah. Yeah, um, I do. Um, it's right right now. It, it's sitting there. It's not being used because, you know, these new rappers today don't use SSLs. They just use it. They use it, it as a, as a table. A, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like a big, like, attractive audio table. Um <laughs> But um, what I appreciate about Dre is definitely the perfectionist. I had never witnessed a perfectionist to that level. 
Hmm. But isn't that also frustrating? It can be. I mean, you know, but I mean, at that point, I was just witnessing, you know, you know, I was just a witness of, of you know, some this this guy's amazing journey, mm-hmm. you know. So being a, you know, being a, one of the witnesses of that, it's amazing. You know, it's like playing on the team with Jordan or something. What's the longest that you spent on like the most minor thing? Oh, hours, hours. <laughs> that could be hours on a hi hat or something like that. I mean, hours. I mean, days. I mean, I mean, please, tracks. We could work on a track for months. It'd be re- revisiting the same track where you're like, it's fire. It's dope. <laughs> you know, and, but if it ain't, it, you know, and it won't ever come out either. If he doesn't, <laughs> if he doesn't, you know, he doesn't, you know, he's got time on his hands. Yeah. 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 So, and it was the, what? It was you, Scott Storch, Mike Elizondo. No, my, my real team was, Storch was more of a, a guest in and out. Like he'd come, sometimes he's there. But really the main squad that I was a part of, mm-hmm. which was my team was, um, Elizondo, me, and Batson, mm. Mark Batson. So Batson was a guy that I worked with. So when I got, so when Dre brought me in, I said, "Hey, there's this guy I work with pretty closely," and I introduced him to Mark, and they hit it off well. Did you know Scott Storch from his roots days? I didn't know. I met Scott originally and um, at Larry Gold Studio in Philly. Wow. Because James Poyser had a room there at Larry Gold Studio, so that's where I met Scott originally. So I've known him throughout the years, but um, I got to know him better, obviously, during the Dre years because mm-hmm. I didn't know I knew him in passing and say hello, but I knew him better, you know, during the Dre years. Yeah. And he would come; he might come for a week or something like that. You know. Did you see it for him back in the Philly days? No, <laughs> no. I mean, he was talented, yeah. you know, but um, you know, um, you know, I, you know, I don't know if it's once again it's because I do know music, you know, the the chords from. Still Dre yeah. are the chords from doo <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Coincidence? I don't know. I'm just saying. Philly? I don't know. Coincidence? Keyboard players? Yes, Scott, I do know that. So so what are some of the things that you start working on in the in the early days for Dre? Early days, it was um, Game. Yeah. So when I came in the door, he was that was Game's first album. Wow. So I did the intro on Game's album with Dre. I did Hire with Dre and... And then I, you know, worked on some of the other tracks. Because what Dre used to do back then too was basically take other people's tracks and perfect them. Mm-hmm. So you oh, know, sort of like Scott Storch. <laughs> so you know, um, so that's why to me the game's first album is so good. I think you have producers that think, oh, you know, I did that track on it. And yeah, you did that track, but the reason it sounds so good is because Dre came behind it and yeah. made it sound fucking amazing. You know. <laughs> So, and that's why the game's first album to me is so good. I think, I think artists, there's so many things that go into making a record and making a great record, record, uh, making a great record. Mm-hmm. And artists have these the success, and they don't know all those things, and so they go on and think they can do it themselves. Mm. You see the pattern, yeah. Game did it, um, um, Fifty did it. The only person who really didn't do it was M. M was like, no, I see what this is. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> next to you, you know what I mean, and that, and that's and, and shout out to M for recognizing that there is something special that these guys bring to a record. Don't get have success and then think you can do it yourself, yeah. and then all then the rest of your records are not nearly as good. Do you have any feeling on what Fifty claims in terms of that half of Game's first album was really his? Well, I mean, until a record comes out, nothing's yours. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, were we making some of the records? Yeah, those, some of the records were ideas for 50 and this and that. But it's also, it's like if you're making different records at the time, okay, if, you know, if we use it on your record, then great. And if it came out, but if your record, that happens all the time. Though. Yeah. So I've seen records, you know, 
some people aren't happy about it, but I've seen records taken back and given there, and this was for this and this and that. I mean, you know, niggas in Paris was supposed to be Pusha T record. It was given to Pusha T at first. Pusha didn't see it for him. Maybe, and it probably wouldn't have been what it was, but right. it was originally went to Pusha T before yeah. it was Kanye and thing. Yeah. So that happened. was Pushes, if it ended up being Pushes, could you see him performing it 12 times in a night? <laughs> well, I just think it would have been a different record yeah, then. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? It would have been a Pusha T record. but And I don't know that that beat was a Pusha T beat, mm -hmm. but... It just shows that, you know, that shit happens yeah. all the time, you know. So so is 50 right? Yeah, but does, does that make a difference? Like, it, right. it came out on games records. It's games <laughs> records. So uh, I I heard you say something like you were making beats for Dre for eight years. Yeah. Um, with Dre. With I wouldn't Dre. say four. I'd say with him. Because yeah, well, he sat right next to me. So how many... What percentage of the records were for Dre and for projects that never? Well, there's probably 400 beats in his. There's probably literally 400 beats that me, Elizondo, Batson were all a part of that are in Dre's safe. That and, and you love them all, and you think they're all. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, we would go to Hawaii and we'd do, we'd be in Hawaii for three weeks and we'd do 75 tracks. Oh my god! So like this, and we did that multiple times. <laughs> let alone what we did every day. Yeah. Know? So. 400 was just a light estimate. There's probably a thousand. Is it hard for you to to let your mind wander to to something new? Are you stuck on like a certain sound? No, certain... no, always. And are you searching for something to sort of please the guy to to actually put it out? Well, with with Dre, I mean, I think you're always trying to you're trying to always do something impactful that can stick. So when you're working and you're throwing out, because you got to think there's three other guys and we're just throwing ideas, you know, and he's the guy in the middle sort of helming the ship. So you're just trying to get your, you know, you're just trying to get an idea. But it's great though when you're working with great musicians like Bats and Elizondo because when you get an idea that sticks, then they they can they can add to it and sprinkles all you know all day. So it's so it's just about trying to get things that stick. After eight years with Dre, how do you navigate your way past aftermath? Um, I realized well, you know, I I, I for those that don't know, I named Beats by Dre. Um, really? The headphone company, yes. Um, and along the way, I started seeing Dre and Jimmy looking at other opportunities. He was looking at liquor, liquor opportunities. He was looking at different things. So I got to see that, okay, he, he was already looking at what's next. So I think I started doing the same. You know, and, and I started researching and learning more. And that's when I, the finance major stuff started helping out. <laughs> I started learning about investing and learning, you know, and all those things. And yeah. started, started getting back into that side of the brain. Well, how did you come up with the name for I mean, like, we're. Well, that's a friend of mine. Um, the whole time, damn near, I was working with Dre, a friend of mine who's one of the top executives at Reebok, who I grew up with, um, was saying, hey, we want to pitch Dre, sneaker deal or whatever. You know, they were still in the business of trying to sign. Um, Dre had always said, "Hey, I'm not really a fashion guy. I don't think." And he's like, "I only wear Air Force Ones, yeah. right. like white low top Air Force Ones. That's all I wear. So I don't really see myself as that." Um, but in this era of when he was looking at different opportunities, he finally agreed to like, "Hey, let me hear a pitch." You know, I think his lawyer had said, "Hey, you know, Dre, you can make a lot of money with this." So, mm -hmm. so he, he agreed to a pitch. So they showed me the pitch first, mm -hmm. and the pitch was very bland. And I was like, "You got to personalize it." So I literally named the sneaker Beats by Dre. So the famous story is Jimmy and Dre walking on the beach where he says, fuck sneakers, let's do speakers. Yes. Mm. And Dre's like, I got the perfect name, Beats by Dre. That's <laughs> <laughs> his history. Um, Billion dollars later. Th yeah, there's only one set of footprints in the sand because you Jay were always there. Yeah. 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 So after that, where do you find yourself? 
Um, I was going to do a company with this guy, Chris Baker, who was married into the Campbell Sioux family. So we had a company that we were, he had funded for about $2 million. Um, but then him and his wife ended up divorcing. Oh, my God. So that dissolved that idea. But I had the idea. So the idea... You find yourself in a, in a bunch of situations where people end up fighting and then separating, and that sort of yeah. screws you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I, hey, that was, you know. Well, actually, did we talk about this? What did Wyclef think about you working with Lauren? Well, originally he thought he was going to do the album. Like he was, you know, I think he was delusional in that regard because I don't think she had any, obviously the album was about him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I don't think she had any intention whatsoever of working with him on the record. Um, but he initially thought he was going to be producing the record. So surprise. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but I, you know, at, you know, at that point I looked at things like, listen, we're, we're grown men, you know, like, you know, if you, you don't question my decision, cool. You question my decision, but I'm a grown man. Like you right. got your life. I got my life, you know? <laughs> so, so, so after, after the Campbell's thing doesn't work. Yeah. So I was still, that was sort of the tail end of Dre thing. I started just looking at different things. I had, you know, I had some friends with that were, wealthy business invest you know investment type people and so we started meeting with different people and actually when i first met with kanye it was potentially to invest in his clothing brand this is when he did not have a clothing brand yet um, so was this going to be for pastel yeah this was post pastel and whatever the new thing was going to gotcha. be and this was watch the throne time because it was literally like watch the throne rehearsals i was meeting him at wow. and things of that nature so i was investing and um at the time he was putting on a fashion show in Paris, but there was no clothing company really. There was no infrastructure. There was no business plan. So the guy that want, I had that wanted to invest in it wasn't necessarily. He was like, "Well, you know, there's no business plan." So, so, and that's when Kanye was like, "Well, you know, I have I have the label. You you know, can you help me? You know, you want to you want to help me with the label?" And you said, "Well, you know, at the time I, it wasn't like I had all this other <laughs> stuff going on. I I just left Dre, and I you know that was no honestly I was I was actually very excited to work with Kanye because it was to me it was." You know, um, it was the next challenge, challenge in terms of my career, and and I just thought he was one of the most innovative and fearless artists out there. Mm -hmm. So that attracted me very much to just be working with someone who was just fearless and and good. Mm -hmm. You know, what I mean, like it's, you could be fearless all day, but if you're fearless and you're just on your own island, <laughs> so and really good. Yeah. So so uh, did you go to any of the Watch the Throne? I did. Sessions? I went to watch the. No, no. Watch the Throne was finishing up. They were just getting ready to start the tour. So mm -hmm. I ended up going on the tour. And then we worked on music at the time. We were working on that, uh, the Crew Winter album or Crew mm -hmm. Summer album mm -hmm. and things of that nature, which led to, you know, I put together Mercy, mm -hmm. uh, me, me and him, because um, I had this producer that I had found in Phoenix. So I had, like, Mercy in my pocket for, like, seven months. Oh, my God. And then it was, like, just fine. And then when he told me about the project, I was like, oh, I got the perfect record for this project. And then, you know, and then we, you know, Clef's it, you know, I mean, I mean, not Clef. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Kanye's, you know, that's where Kanye's genius comes into play. He was like, man, there's this guy, Twilight Tone, that I work with from Chicago, this, leg you know, legendary DJ. Twilight Tone's the one who put the reggae sample in it. So I had this track, Lamborghini and Mercy, and then once you put the reggae sample in it, that was everything. Oh, my God. And then you have Mike Dean add some stuff, and then it's, then now it's Lamborghini Mercy. Yeah. So that was, like, the first thing I did with Kanye. So <laughs> that's, a, that's a good start. Yeah, yeah, it was a good start. So we did that, and Crew Summer. I mean, Crew Summer, a lot of it was done – on the road and traveling. So I think the record wasn't as cohesive as we wanted it to be. Mm -hmm. Cause I think it really could have been, um, even like one of the super, like could have been a classic. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, mercy came out of it. Click, click came out of it. A couple other really good records are on yeah. there. So I was very, still very proud of the, yeah, 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 you yeah. Know, I don't know how Kanye feels about the record, <laughs> but I was still very proud of the record. And then after cruel summer is Jesus. 
Yeah, and um, I mean, and then good music, just good music itself, just being involved with good music and getting to know Pusher and Sean and these different artists and these talents and Tiana. And then, yeah, eventually Yeezus. Yeezus was challenging. Yeah. Because, you know, that was like a frontier that hadn't been crossed yet. In terms of sound and sound and and we did most of it in paris so it was like you're making this this sonic exploration in a foreign city yeah, yeah. which also brings challenges of just spending time in a foreign city for yeah. that amount of time how's your french terrible <laughs> terrible i don't speak a word of it i mean when i was there i i, I knew like right left <laughs> water you yeah. know yeah no thank you you know yeah, the, yeah. the basics Champagne. yeah um when i was in paris i listened to french montana because yeah, when French, you're in, when, yeah. when in Rome, you know. <laughs> yeah. But uh, what did you listen to to like inspire you throughout the process, or is uh, it just like you're making music and that's? No, no, I, I would. I, I, justice. Mm. I would. I can't speak for anyone else. Yeah. yeah. I was listening to Justice. Yeah. I just like Justice too. Plus, Justice has the angst. Yeah. And I was looking for and angst. French. Yeah. Brand, yeah, yeah. That was coincidental, but. Um, <laughs> I also listened to like you know I was listening to like drum and bass early tricky, mm-hmm. um, although, and you know that my influences that what I was listening to didn't come in the album. We were just really trying to just disrupt, you know, sound. I guess you know mm-hmm. what I mean. So it was great just just to see the him put these different people like Estelfacine and 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 Bordinsky working on the project, and then Justin Vernon and, and you know incorporating all these things. We had went to me and Noah went to Jamaica and we worked with the kid Assassin. Mm. Um, and, you know we had this kid. Evian Christ. It was like this almost sonic noise type track. So incorporating and you know, and then having um what's the guy's name? I can't think of his name, the the Venezuelan producer, um songwriter. Arca. Arca. Oh, yeah, and like yeah, incorporating yeah. like having Arca, you know, and then you mix those with like, you know, Sham and, you know, some of these hip hop producers and, and that energy and eighty eight keys and you know, so and then you come up with Jesus. <laughs> yeah. You know. Well so that was great. It was an amazing experience. But do do we understand this correctly that one or I'm sure there were hundreds of versions of, of Yeezus but like that it was more colorful initially no oh, okay <laughs> no I wouldn't say that I mean there were tracks that you know all the tracks went through various journeys and phases uh, the track was started off with you know Kanye and um, they started the record off with uh, Daft Punk so it was just Kanye and Daft Punk and the first two records they worked on were um, On Sight and um, I Am A God mm and you know the first version, the original version of "I Am a God" to this day, I still love the original version of "I Am a God." So I just, just give it to us. Yeah, <laughs> I don't have it, but if I did, I might bootleg it. Yeah. Um, but that was inspiring enough. Just hearing those two tracks, and and he just had maybe like a reference freestyle on it. But just hearing those two shit was like, oh shit, what's this? Shit? Yeah. Like dur, 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 on site, it was like, and it was all over the place. It hadn't been arranged or anything yet. It was like this manic. I was like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> so you have like you know. There's a clear line of like everything up to the last track, which is bound to. What was the conversation like in putting that song together and also including it on the album? Well, it's kind of funny because I gave him that track and that idea early in the process. And of course, he was on total like distortion mode, you know, you know, disruption. He was like, nah, we're not, <laughs> not doing soul samples, Che. Like, get, get out of here with that shit. Um, you know, he'd be terrible at improv, by the way. Just, no, then, no, no, no. <laughs> and then he had a record that he, yeah, I think he'd been working on with No ID that was some kind of soul record too, and that's where that hook came from with the Charlie Wilson idea, and um, which is why if you see the publishing credits on Bound, No ID has publishing credits on mm. it with an asterisk. <laughs> yes, definitely with an asterisk. So that original 
chorus, the, the just the Mike Dean thing and the Charlie Wilson thing came from a different idea. And then <laughs> Kanye being the genius that Kanye is, put them together. Mm. Um, shout out to Kanye for that. And shout out to Mike Dean for the baseline, the move yeah. baseline. Um, but Charlie Wilson, oh my God, that guy's amazing. We talk about, I mean, a guy just come from like Japan doing shows. I don't know, he's in his 60s. And it was like, man, she's like, Chad, I just got off a plane. I probably got like, I don't know, maybe an hour that I could do. And just nailed the vocal like, <laughs> I was like, Jesus, this guy's. He's the best. Yeah, you know, man, he is a God. So what what role do you attribute uh, to Rick Rubin? The sensei. You know, I think every, you know, every, it doesn't matter if you could be a, med, you know, a master, a Jedi, whatever, you still need your, you know, you still need your Yoda, you still need your sensei. Rick was the sensei. Kanye needed a sensei at that point. Kanye doesn't need anybody, you know what I mean? Kanye can make a, an album himself, you know, like like he's doing now. But, you know, he also has, also can work with great contributors, you know? Mm-hmm. And in this case, Rick was the sensei. Yeah. Someone to bounce ideas off of, give some feedback to, you know? Is is bound to your favorite track off that album? <laughs> no, <laughs> um, on site and mm. send it up. Mm. Yeah, I like bound. I'm, I'm you know obviously I like bound, but I like I like Kanye's verse and King Louis' verse on send it up. That's one of my favorites, and on site is my favorite. Did you see him uh, on tour perform that stuff live? Yep. Yeah. And definitely. Is, is that does that bring something totally different to the table? I think the tour itself is an amazing experience because you know I mean who else had a a moving a floating, mountain yeah. floating <laughs> mountain and a G, you know, a procession of, you know, naked, whatever, whatever, you know, I don't know what you call the naked procession, but, yeah. <laughs> um, you yeah, know, I think the yin yang twins do that first. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and the mask, I forget, yeah. you know, let's yeah, not yeah. mention the be- bejeweled masks, the custom made mask that, you know, I literally went with him one day and met him. It was like a mask fitting. It was amazing. Like they took molds and stuff like that. I was so, I was, I didn't realize how involved that was. Oh Did you God. also get a mask? No, no. I can't afford those. <laughs> Please, that man cost more than my house. Um, what can you say about Sean and Tiana and and Pusha as as creatives? I mean, they're dope. Each person is their own person, and I think everyone has their own experiences. You know, meaning Pusha grew up in Virginia and then came through the Neptunes thing and had experiences. You know, with making music with his brother and Pharrell, and then moving into you know growing and maturing as a as a musician and artist, but also a businessman. Um, you know you can't big Sean went through you know to to make it from coming from Detroit is just that much harder you know he rapped at a radio station got his deal and then he had to like navigate okay now I got a deal okay and from from being mixtape Sean to how do I sell records Sean mm-hmm. you know and sell records and sell things and Tiana's still in that journey and Tiana's becoming more of a multimedia platform you know what I mean using film and television and these other avenues to sort of help it but she's still learning that yeah. as far as on the music side where those guys have figured it out Tiana's still figuring it out by the way I, th- I think we both agree uh, her first album is pretty underrated it is yeah it is yeah. First, uh, one, first one to complete a project on Tiana me it was it was just definitely tough yeah 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 yeah. <laughs> but but you know she's she's opinionated she's strong-minded strong-willed mm-hmm. you know and um i do think i do think def jam really did not service the record because i still have people stop me on the street and bring up the tiana record and i'll be like oh yeah you know and i catch me off guard they'll be like you guys should have did better promoting <laughs> that record you know like almost like threatening me like that but i'm like okay sorry what's it mean i don't do marketing i'm not a marketer um, how is Pusha different as president than you and your administration? <laughs> well, I don't think I was really ever president. I never, I, I don't really have a title at good. I mean, I just, 
I'm one of the people who, like I would say me and Noah Kanye's engineer would just our title should be we just get shit done. It's a long title. <laughs> yeah, it's like not a really catchy. That literally would be our title, and 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 you know, Push is an artist, you know. So Push is, you know, he's he's a very opinion. I think the reason he works as a, an executive in the thing, he's very opinionated. Mm-hmm. So his opinions on this artist or that artist or who you should sign or what could go on with that. But I mean, at the end of the day, I would say the glue of it over the years because we have been understaffed has been me and Noah because we're just you know there's a lot of contributors people come in and this out but the, you know, over the last and since I've been there mm-hmm. the glue of it's probably been me and Noah where, where you know I would say my job would be get shit done yeah you know because it doesn't matter you know whether it's an A&R thing or if it's this or that it's just get shit done you know whether I'm uploading Shake's project to mastering or you know you know sitting there with Jules and you mm-hmm. know spending time you know educating a manager to the to the system of Def Jam, you mm. know, and acquainting people with that, you know. Well, how do you like how do you like the majors right now? Uh, that 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 opinion could get me shot. Okay. <laughs> um, they're evolving, mm-hmm. and that's good. I'm better late than never. Mm-hmm. Um, there's still quite a bit more they could do and be, and so on and so forth. I mean, you know, it's not about market share. You know, it's about artists. You know, and I think. Until you make it about artists and art, and my premise is artists need to own in their art. Mm-hmm. And so, till artists own in their art, fuck them. Yeah. Well, there's there's a lot of majors out there who will sign everyone who has one hot song immediately, and that's the way that they think that they can get the market share and get the artists. Yep. Well, also just to give them like a little bit of money. Yeah, oh, and then we'll give them a little bit of money, but they, you know, I've I've also heard you know like when certain artists have been like, hey, you know, I want to do a profit share deal, and they're like, oh, you're talking crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, you know, why not? Like, why why not? If you, you're, you know, if you're a app developer and you go to a VC and they fund your company, you still own. Mm-hmm. So why why don't artists own? Yeah, yeah. right. Why don't you all grow t- grow together? You know, as exactly. opposed and to business partners. You know. <laughs> yeah, versus you just take my ticket sales and my publishing and this and that and i understand that the the, the the economics have changed but you know if if the artists don't own in their art then they don't own in that that payout from streaming mm-hmm. that they, they, they pay the master owner you know you guys just announced you signed valet yes he's um he's amazing i love him shout, uh, out, shout to out to andrew monopoly. barber yeah shout out to yeah. andrew barber shout out to john monopoly yeah um when did you when was he first put on your radar and actually him? john monop is the one who brought it to the table but prior to that because i uh i have to bring this up to because young chop called me and, and reminded me that he played me valet a long time ago <laughs> um so shout out to young chop um it was john monopoly's play though and you know john monopoly has a history with kanye and so mm-hmm. on and so forth so john monopoly is the one who works closely with andrew barber Steele, and he's the one who sort of brought it to the table um and you know so I have to give him credit for that, you know, but I thought the kid was dope. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, why when Chop brought it, played it for me, I <laughs> slept on it. I don't know. But, you know, who knows what was going on in life at that time, <laughs> you know, but and, and I don't know if it was as evolved as it is now, but mm-hmm. he did, you know, but, you know, it was really uh, Monop was the really the, the one who campaigned that. And how many new artists are being played for you like at all time? Because I, I read a story about you listening to a kid from Texas, same town as Travis Scott. Yeah. Um, and he he approached you and um, 
and you listen to his music and and i thought that was you know surprising because it, it could just be anybody i mean i try to listen to everybody's music i just spoke at harvard business school last week and literally i've got harvard kids sending me their projects and i've just been listening to like harvard business school rappers which is interesting are they <laughs> yeah one kid's pretty, that, yeah one yeah. kid's pretty good i can't I, I would love to shout him out right now but i don't remember his name but he's pretty good you just don't want anyone else to sign him. Yeah, you don't, you yeah, know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what. But um, no, I mean, I love, you know, it's about the young artists. This whole thing, everything we do and like we're doing, it's about if it's not for new artists and, and, and they're keeping the spirit alive. And you know what I mean? Because to me, you know, other guys, they got enough money. You know what I mean? <laughs> Hopefully they invest well. But it's really about the youth, you know, mm-hmm. in, my, in, in my opinion. But. Yeah. And what do you think about the whole evolution of the life of Pablo? How it continued, even though it was officially put out on streaming services, to oh, was dope. get was different dope. mixes, get different. Sort it was of- dope. I was asked a question before, like someone said to me in in some interview, they were like, "Wasn't Life of Pablo the worst rollout, and you were part of, and this and that?" Da-da? I said, "For who?" Yeah. <laughs> I said, "Ask yourself that question. For who was it? The worst rollout for Kanye? Was it the worst rollout for Universal?" <laughs> you do you do the math what is the sound of one hand clapping <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's like real. you know what i mean so you know and and you know i i think life of pablo is an amazing project yeah i think the records are dope i think there's some records where they're just a vibe it's not even a song it's a vibe like fade is just a vibe yeah you know what i mean there's records where it's like i mean kanye i think got what four bars on it eight bars yeah. or something like you know shit's dope though it's yeah. a vibe so life of pablo you know shout out to life of pablo do you miss the old kanye <laughs> <laughs> I miss the old Kanye. I like the new Kanye. I mean, Kanye. You know what I like about Kanye? Because he's always a different person. Maybe it's the Gemini in him. Uh, you know, he's just you know, my wife's a Gemini too, and Lauren Hill's a Gemini. All these Gemini's around me, but he's always a different person. So you never know what you're gonna get. I mean, I can be in. I mean, I've been in conversations with where he's where he's referenced Brazilian architects, and I've had to go back. I've had to take notes quietly without anyone looking, and then go research what he just brought up in the conversation <laughs> you know what i mean so i love that he's constantly journey learning exploring whatever his journey is whether it's fashion or whatever his interest is it's you know these amazing artists that he works with or that he you know makes me aware of shit that because he's he goes so hard at the stuff you know and he and he's got so many people bringing him so much information that he's constantly evolving and learning and that and that's impressive to me um can you talk about going to the louvre uh, by yourselves at night? I used to do that because, well, first of all, you can't see the Louvre in one day, right. you know? And I didn't, I never really went with Kanye. I would go on my own. Um, but Kanye went, you know, same thing. It's just, it, you can't not be in Paris and not do like Versailles and the Louvre and be inspired by, you know, everything because it's one of those cities, it's an old city and there's so much inspiration there and it's so much battery for your tank if you use it, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like, so I would just go in there, and you know, you'd come back and just cook. <laughs> do you do you walk around in silence, or were you listening on headphones to anything, mm-hmm. or just walking around absorbing? I mean, some days I did listen to music, but I like just going there randomly, like without even telling me where I'm going. I would just go and just, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, to the point that the security guard started recognizing me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what does LA mean to you? LA, um, quality of life. Waking up every day in the sunshine. <laughs> I mean, it's it, you know, growing up in Boston. I mean, I can't. I I literally called my dad and I was like, why 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 did you, why didn't you move? Right. This is this is the sunshine that you wanted when you were going to. Yeah, you know, I was like, I was like, basketball. why did you decide to? Why did you decide to reside in Boston and stay in Boston? Like, <laughs> when you could have moved and had sunshine every day, all the time of the year, like, and go to the beach and go to the mountains and do this and, you know. He was like, "Yeah, you're probably right." <laughs> <laughs> does it? So, and what does it mean for your creative process? Sunshine. 
I mean, I got a skylight. The one of the reasons I even took this little creative space is because it has a skylight. Yeah. Um, but I like it also that, you know, shit, I can leave right now and just go to the beach and just kick it at the beach. Yeah. And take a beat machine with me. Or, you know, I got beat machines that are that are rechargeable, yeah. you know, or take a laptop and just work. And yeah. Be at the beach. And just, you know, <laughs> but you don't you don't need those clouds. You don't need a little darkness to sort of like change your soul, your whole like. Yeah, sometimes. I mean, sometimes. And then I just go to New York for that. Yeah. You know, <laughs> go to New York, you know, run the streets at night. You know what I mean? And then, you know, and then hit the studio, you know, do the New York thing. Can you, you create? Get the angst. Can you create on airplanes? I can. Yeah. I can, uh, especially overseas airplanes, like yeah. long flights, yeah. Oh, oh, like overnight? Yeah, like those long 10-hour, 12-hour flights, you know, like Asia. I go to Asia a lot. So. Yeah. Yeah, those are good. Oh, yeah. Talk about um, being in a writer's room with, like, the YG Collective in fun. Korea. It's fun because it's a different um, song camps. I had never done song camps. I have a lot of song singers and songwriters, you know, that's popular these days. So I was actually speaking at one in Norway, and then I was like, you know what? I want to try it and participate the first one i did my first ever k-pop song was about a dog <laughs> it was it was a horrible song but i think it, we should license it to like every car like i think it could be in every cartoon i'm actually trying to get a copy of the song right now because i think it could be in every cartoon it was the most horrible song ever but i, I didn't knew nothing about k-pop at the time um i feel very versed in it now um and i was working with these guys and i mean they weren't even full-time producers. The, the one of the guys was the air traffic controller, and and it's funny like these shout out to Norwegians in the Scandinavia region. And, you know, they're so talented. Yeah, like this guy was probably more talented than like ninety percent of the producers in the U.S. But he was an air traffic controller and only did tracks on the weekends and the evenings. <laughs> but anyway, um, <laughs> so I started participating in the song camps, and these guys, these Norwegian writers and these Swedish writers, they were big K-pop writers. Number one, like the top guys in this camp were like big k-pop writers wow so i started doing stuff with them and yeah so it's been fun like i, I enjoy it how's your it's a different muscle <laughs> yeah. huh? how's your korean terrible but i mean i i have a lot of korean friends and logic you know japanese and asian friends so now like you know i, I enjoy like cl who just closed the olympic mm -hmm. went to olympics you know she's a good friend yep and you know working on her project we'll see you know her project's been a journey as well she's yeah her i saw own. her here two years ago right after she uh partnered up with scooter Braun and all yeah that. yeah she's, she's great project's still not out yeah, and but she's figuring out. She got records. And now yeah. it's just a matter of figuring out the right means of how they're going to put it out and this and that. They yeah. had a sort of they had they'd gone down a path, and I think they doubled back. All right. So, uh, we saw you pictured with BJ the Chicago Kid. BJ's dope. We got some shit we're about to do. All right. Yeah, that's dope. And that's what else the, you work? And then what about Bootsy? Uh, Bootsy is the one. Bootsy's uh, he's gonna he's gonna choke me. Bootsy's <laughs> Bootsy. I have to finish his remix today. Wow. I have a remix I'm doing with Bootsy. It's uh, he's already got Caliuchis on his single. Um, I love Bootsy to death. I think it's the return of the baseline. I think Bruno Mars is really mm. mm -hmm. one of the people that helped bring, is bringing the baseline back. Um, shout out to Bruno for that. And, and that's that's the pop way of it. But, you know, on another note of it, if you think about Redbone, that's Bootsy. Mm -hmm. You know, Redbone, um, Childish Gambino. So you have sort of the pop guys bringing it back. I mean, Chromio, to me, always a champion the baseline yeah. yeah i mean they were big you know so they're the funk lords so I, so I had to go find bootsy i had literally tracked him down and i knew snoop knew how to find him mm -hmm. knew, knew, knew i knew snoop knew him so i hit snoop and i was like yo i i gotta find bootsy <laughs> and he put me in touch with bootsy and i've been now and bootsy came through and we've been we've been chopping it up and we're gonna we're gonna make records together and so we're starting with his remix does bootsy when he's you know not on 
is he always on? Yes, he's Bootsy. <laughs> you can't be Bootsy and not be Bootsy. You know? The sunglasses, the, yeah, the hat, yep. the whole thing. Yep, the, him and his wife, beautiful wife and beautiful spirits. They're never. He's never not Bootsy. Oh See, like he can hold on to his accent. You just can't hold on to yours. <laughs> yeah, well, he still lives in Ohio. <laughs> You know, I mean, he lives, you know, he, if I go back to Boston, it'll be back fast. It'll be, ah, I'll be, ah, and everything will be, comes back, you know. Oh, well, congratulations on everything. All right. Thank I, you so much for being a part of this. This was and, fun. This yeah. Was fun. And, uh, and hopefully we see you soon. If not here, then maybe at Mike Dean's pool house. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they painted the wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They painted they the wall. Cool. Shout, shout out to Russell Peters. Most you punk. <laughs> Thanks so much. That yeah, was fun. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this new episode of Waste Time with It's The Real. Jeff, if people want to find out more about us, we are It's The Real. If people want to find out more about this podcast, it's called A Waste of Time with It's The Real, and we have 174 other episodes that people can dive into. If people want to find out what bench we're sitting on in Austin, Texas, Jeff, where can they go? You can always go to our website, itsthereal.com, I-T-S-T-H-E-R-E-A-L. As always, no apostrophes and no spaces. Whenever you write our name, you can always find our podcast on soundcloud.com slash a waste of time you can also find them on itunes search for a waste of time with it's the real if you're looking for our music it is on spotify title apple music google play jeff we are nearing a million plays on spotify alone shout out to everybody who has been playing our music we've seen the numbers going up steadily shout out to all you guys who have been adding our song sugar high to your playlist also girl your ass is like a metaphor hey if you're looking for our book because we have a book we have a book. It is on pre-order at Amazon.com. Search for Rhyme Book by Jeff Rosenthal and Eric Rosenthal. It's a lined notebook with plenty of original It's The Real content in there. There's games. There's graphs. There's quotes from this very here podcast that will inspire you. It's a chance for you to write down your dreams, your goals, your hooks, your verses. If you want to do a to-do list, if you want to do a to-don't list, if you want to <laughs> write down people's names of people you hate, that is all appropriate for this book. That's on you guys. Whatever you want to do with it, it's an excellent book. It's called Rhyme Book, and it's available for pre-order on Amazon.com. Yes. If you're looking for us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at It's The Real, Facebook at It's The Real, Instagram at It's The Real. We are also on Snapchat at It's It's The Real, and on Twitch at It's The Real, It's The Real, but we haven't used either Snapchat or Twitch in, like, forever. So just follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Jeff, you know this podcast isn't going anywhere unless we get you guys, our loyal listeners and friends and family, to spread the word to your loyal listeners. Anybody who listens to you, spread the word about this very here podcast, A Waste of Time with It's The Real, and let's double up our audience. Jeff, who do you want to shout out? I want to shout out Erica Ramirez, who we saw when we were out in L.A. We got some barbecue with her. I also want to shout out Judd Nikki. We all went out together to get some breakfast, and we sat next to Flea of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. That was dope. Incredibly dope. Um, I also want to shout out the people at Hip Hop Heads on Reddit, because apparently some guy was talking about us on there. Shout out to everybody on Reddit. That is a good community for us to be a part of. And um, so, yeah, shout out to everybody on If you're on Reddit, go spread the word about A Waste of Time with It's The Real. Jeff, I want to shout out our longtime friend and partner in music, Greg Mayo, who has done all of the It's The Real music, including the theme song, Suns Out, Guns Out, for this podcast of ours, A Waste of Time with It's The Real. If you guys love the music, go to Instagram. Let's follow him there, at Greg Mayo Music, and let him know that you like the music, you love the music, and maybe you want some music. Because, Jeff, I say this because, because somebody reached out to Greg and was like, I so appreciate that theme song. I want one of my own for my podcast. And what did we tell Greg? 
don't do it. We said, unless it's a brand new beat for him, don't give him the fire that you've given us for our second album. Thanks again to everybody who has spread the word about this podcast. Let's keep it going. Keep listening to the music. Keep buying that book. Send it up the charts. Let's make this 2018 even better than it's already been. As always, Jeff, not for real, for real. Sure, sure. See you guys next week. Right. Like a fucking sunset.